Hey, everyone here on, at the Investing Stuff Ishino podcast. We have a great guest today with us, Shannon Robnett. This guy is a dominant force in the development space. And something we've probably been a little bit light on in the show is on the development side, something that I've been more interested in. A lot of investors are looking at the space, interested. That's the highest, taking a piece of dirt from basically nothing to putting some vertical construction on there can be the highest return on investment. So Shannon, thanks for being with us and for sharing your knowledge or about to share your knowledge and all the things you've learned. Johnny, I appreciate you having me on the show. Awesome, man. Awesome. Give us, you and I were doing a little pre-chat here. You're predominantly, you do a lot of work in Boise, other other markets. Just kind of share share with us a little bit about what your focus is and where you come from and what you're doing. Currently, we've got projects going in Washington, Boise, Idaho, the Treasure Valley here, so all over Idaho, as well as Texas and moving down into Houston. So we've got some stuff under contract down there right now. Awesome, man. Is that the existing product or is that also on the new development side? We like to do both. And it's really easy to put a foothold somewhere, get some existing product. We also do a lot in the industrial. So you get some industrial, you get some multifamily, you balance your portfolio, you do some value add, you do some development. That way you're just, you're really maximizing your footprint when you go into a market. I love that. I love that. And then also you're not quite, maybe it's easier, like you said, to get a toehold or a foothold in a new market by getting the strategic moves and then growing from that perhaps, huh? Yeah. No, it definitely is because when you're trying to move into a market, one of the worst things that you can do is try and manage it from a thousand miles away. Yes. You know, just making relationships, being being present, taking advantage of what the market has to offer. It just takes some it, it takes some getting used to and it takes some immersion in the market. And that easiest way I found to do that is just go in and take down three or four assets and then move through that and build your way out of it. Awesome, man. Give us, and I like to pull on threads as we go through conversations so people actually get, get walk away with real insights. Give us your strategy then for, and this, is not, I know this won't be the focus of the show, but give us your strategy because you're in these different markets that are growing and strong and are doing well. Give us a strategy for what Shannon's team has done as you go into market. So yes, yes, you're going to maybe take out an existing asset, but what does that, more, more specifically, what does that process look like? You send down three of your best team and, or you hire somebody or what is that the evolution of the, of the market knowledge and getting better and growing the team locally? Like you said, it's hard to do. So obviously you're growing the team locally. Give us some specifics there. The reality is you start developing the relationships with the brokers, asking questions, finding deals that I like and saying, hey, do you have more like these? Not expecting them to, hi, my name's Shannon, give me all your best deals, right? Yeah. Because that's what a lot of people do. And that just, it really just shows your lack of um, longevity in the marketplace because we all know it's about real relationships and that kind of thing. So a couple months of talking and getting to know each other and finding different areas, then I'll show up. I go down and spend a week in the market. I want to I wanna get to know the area. I want to see why I like this area. You've recommended this. I appreciate that. I've got some questions and concerns about this. And then we start circling deals. And once you've started to really engage and understand that you're going to be spending time and money in this market, and when the realtors see that, they start to look at it and go, you know what? This guy's real. He's putting time in here. He's getting to know our market. It's not just a, hey, shoot me a deal. And if the numbers align perfectly, I'll throw an offer out there as a Hail Mary and maybe we'll get it. And maybe we won't. And maybe we'll use you and maybe we won't. We just really go for the relationships and then want to know what the leasing strategies are, all those kinds of things. And then once we've defined that, then we look at it and say, that's great. We really like this area. This is good. Where are the development opportunities? And then we just really step into that and go, wow, what's the process? Get to know the planners. But again, it's all built on the relationships that come out of those early contacts with realtors and commercial brokers and things of that nature. I think that subconsciously also 
tells people that you're working with in those areas, like the brokers initially, but then other associated people that you're serious. It's not just, you have a lot of money, which I'm not assuming you do or don't, but let's just, I'm just going to go write a big check and just buy some stuff and be here and gone. It's a really, it's a commitment to the area, to the people, the team that you are, like you said already, is uh, you're going to, it's not a genuine relationship. It's a genuine interest in that market. And you're going to have long-term relationships for a long-term game here. And that's, that just gets people confidence. Yeah. I want to work with this team. Yeah. Moving, kind of moving. Let's talk about Boise. Just maybe that's maybe if I'm assuming correctly, it's your anchor market. We hear a lot of stuff. Any investor worth, worth or salt looks at the markets across the country, Shannon. What his, what is going on in Boise? I just, I'm just a more of an anecdotal type of insight from a local there. What's going on there? Right? When everybody asks why Boise, I, my, my, my pat answer is, I guess you haven't been here because I'm looking out my window 45 minutes away is a ski hill right? 45 minutes in the easterly direction is a lake where we can go boating, ride jet skis, river raft. There's absolutely a gorgeous river that you can fish in right through the center of town. We've got mountain biking, we've got kayaking, we've got all the outdoor sports you could want, hiking, fishing, all of that is right here. And we've got a really low crime rate. We've got a really good school system. We've got a really strong quality of life. And when people look at that and they see that, hey, man, I'm a three-hour flight from LA. I'm a two-hour flight from Sacramento. I can be in the Bay Area in two hours and 20 minutes on a $49 Southwest flight. Why wouldn't I live here? And we're start, we saw a lot of that. We've seen a groundswell over the last couple of decades of people moving in from out of state, but we've really seen it in the last three years, especially with COVID. Yes. Boise City went from $72,000 a year in annual income to over 94000 in less than two years. That was because we had a lot of $150,000 to $200,000 a year jobs, telecommuting jobs, move into the area. And people just go, you know what, if I'm going to be locked down with $10 million of my closest friends, I might as well do it with people I like. That's so good, man. I love that insight. love that story. Even back in the 70s, myself, like I shared with you, but also with the audience, I was born in Napa. So my, my I have some connections and this, that, and the other there. And back in the 70s, I'm an 80s baby here, but back in the 70s, my parents were like, yeah, baby, that was some of that stuff was even going on there. So this is, I don't know, it's, it's been, the location has been all been attractive to people like from California. But of course, like you said, COVID accelerated that and really made that yeah. compelling. And in two years, that 20 year delta between 70 to 90K of median income is astonishing, of course. And that's, like you said, it just speaks to the fact that there's really a lot of people with clearly that's indicating high paying jobs have moved in there because that's the only way to move the median and a number and an average like that is for a bunch yeah. of people with really well-paying jobs to, to move there. And that course has bleed, bleed down effects and sideway effects to other people in the market here. Let's talk about uh, Shannon, the development space. I love the space. What? Just talk to me about it. So you've done like $350 million in construction projects. I can see here in your bio, you said office buildings, city halls, fire and police stations, schools, industrial mini storage, a, a wide variety of really interesting, cool things, things we see all the time. How does one, how does a developer first get into the space, decide you're going to be a developer and then find these interesting projects? My path was one of, of I saw my value as a merchant builder. I could go out and, and I could build your building, Johnny. And then when we're done, I shake your hand, you paid me for the job and then I have to go find another job. But if I'm in the development space, I'm going to be able to control that a lot more. I'm going to be able to build the product that I want. I'm going to build it efficiently. I'm going to be able to maximize my profitability. And then I'm going to be able to keep that product so that it continues to pay me every month. Yes. And the reality is I like doing things once and getting paid for the rest of my life. And I figured that out early on, which is uh -huh. for a contractor, right? <laughs> yes. Most of us don't figure that out because we keep doing the same thing where we trade time for money and then we got to go find more time 
to trade for someone instead of keeping that product. And I learned that early on that if I could do that for myself, in fact, I built my first industrial building for myself in 2001, and two of my tenants are still in the building from that period of time. In fact, that's incredible. That's incredible. Yeah. One of the businesses has sold three times, but where else are you going to move a gelato ice cream kitchen? So he has to stay there. But for the last 20 years, they paid the rent. They paid off that building for me. Yeah. And I did the work in 2020 or 2002, 2000, 2000, sorry. So the reality is at the end of the day, when I started to see that, I really focused on going down to the city, finding out what's going on, watching city council meetings, seeing where things were going and what the development was and seeing what the need was. Again, building relationships with real estate brokers, finding out what their clients are wanting, what the rental market is. And out of that, we've been able to build some multifamily. We've been able to build quite a bit of industrial and just be able to balance that and keep a real close tie on what's going on. But John, what you're really doing is you're taking the sticks and stones and you're adding the magic ingredient of the cash flow and you're creating the original value add. You know, when you're out there buying a value add, you're buying somebody else's cash flow. They took this yes. this pretty purple pig and they put new carpet and new gym equipment in it 5 years ago and your goal is to redo the landscaping and repaint the outsides, but you're already buying cash flow that maybe you're paying $125,000 a door for that he paid $80,000 a door for that was built in the 70s for a door. And so there's been this whole progression of what this is. And I've just decided that, you know what, if I'm going to hold something long-term, I want it to be new. I want it to be shiny. I want it to be the cutting edge that's in the marketplace. And so that's really where we have stepped in and really accelerated our development skills to make sure that we're doing what the cities want in an area and in a fashion that makes sense for the long-term growth of the city. And then we're creating that building backwards into an eight cap and making it a really great investment for everybody. I love that, man. And you touch on so many things there, but uh, just to have folks go away here, what are the like three things that you feel like developers like yourself? Because like obviously everyone's not a developer and I think you have a unique perspective and unique skill set, a unique maybe a penchant for sniffing out some of these, all these different little things that you have to pull out. What are three things in the, people like yourself or others that you've seen that are successful developers that you say those are good skills to have, personal skills? Or even professional. Obviously, the skill of negotiation, because you've got to build backwards, right? You've got to look at it and say, hey, I'm getting $2 a foot for rent, yeah. which means I can pay this much for the building and I can pay this much for the land. The other thing you've got to have is you've got to have tenacity. You've got to have, you've got to be willing to get knocked down. You've got to be willing to show up at the city council meetings with the neighbors and their pitchforks and their, their lanterns. And they're trying to run you out of town, even though they just moved here two years ago. Yeah. We see it now with Steph Curry, right? He's yes, got yes. this, this Oh, oh dude, I, I saw that. I saw that. I was going to post on it. But I was like, I, yeah. I, 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 this is a little bit negative, but it was so, one of those case in points. It was so loud. I almost couldn't stop myself from mentioning it to my friends and online. Yeah, and you can't because here's a guy that really is about change in a people group and change in, in, in his community, yet it gets a little close to home and even he can't keep it inside. You want to just the, tell the folks what that story is? I'm talking like an inside story here, but just real, real quick, lay that, that story out real fast for the, the well, audience. There's Steph Curry, what famous basketball player. They're proposing within two miles of his $30 million mansion to put in a low-income tax credit housing community. 
community. In California, in California, right? Yeah, in California, it's government-assisted housing. And so it's going to be one of the largest income disparities you can create within two miles. You got $30 million mansions and people that are getting government assistance to pay for their housing. And Mr. Curry doesn't really want that in his neighborhood, right? And that's the beauty of being a property owner. You get a voice, right? And I believe you should have a voice. So anyway, that's the story. But what we really see is you've got to have that tenacity to make sure that you can follow through because it is a long, I had one project that just recently took me 18 months to get entitled. Should have taken me four. It took five times as long and I had to keep going. I'm under contract. I'm spending money, all those kinds of things. And the third thing that you really have to take into account if you really want to be a developer is you have to look at things from a global perspective because it's much easier and it's much more quickly satisfying to go buy a value add. Yeah, You can go do that two or three, four times a year, whereas a development is going to take you 36 to 48 months, right? To go from start to finish on 200 units, it's going to take you a longer period of time. But I'm here to tell you when you're done, the value that's created is enormous compared to what you're doing in a value add space. And then the longevity of which you can own that asset, the duration that you're going to be able to hold that asset is going to be light years different. And you're going to be getting top of the market rents. Let me, I'd love to just keep going on that, that thread there. But as a fund manager, Shannon, let me put my skeptical investor hat on because that's who I face. They're like, okay, but risk adjusted. So how do you talk to your investors here? And we're, this is all, we'll revisit this later in the show as we wrap it up here. How do you address that? Because we know the risk is super, super high. Just like you said, it should have taken four months. It took 18 months. How? It, but we also know that the return on your effort and investment is the highest for development. So how, what has been your philosophy in working through that? And what you share to people. One of the first things that I think everybody should do is really dig into who their sponsor is. Look at their track record. I've been doing this for almost 30 years. I'm a second generation builder developer. Not that means I'm perfect, but it means that I've seen a lot of market cycles and I've seen a lot of things happen. And we've, tr- we've taken into account a lot of different things. The other thing that I think people need to look at is they need to look at it and understand who they are as an investor. If you're looking for cash flow, development is not for you. Right. But if you're looking to grow and you're sitting there going, hey, man, I have $300,000, you can't live on cash flow on $300,000. You just can't. You've got to turn that 300 into 3 million. And development is a great way to do that. So if you've identified your sponsor, you've dug in deep on them, you've identified what the pitfalls are in the area and how things can get out of hand. And then you really want to understand what kind of contingency plans do they have? Because if they say they don't need them, run like hell. Because if you don't have at least three contingency plans in every development deal, you haven't done this before. We've seen, just look at what's happened in the last three years. We couldn't get windows. We couldn't get tubs. We couldn't get electrical equipment. We couldn't get workers. We had COVID shutdown. We had all this stuff just in the last 24 months, 36 months. And if we decided that was an obstacle, we would have missed out on everything that's come. With that came massive rent growth, which we will participate in. But those are the kind of things that you really just need to look at and identify who you are as an investor before you get too far down that road. I love that, man. That's really good here. Let's talk about, let's pivot towards the financing and the debt side of this here. And that's something I'm very curious about as well. What is there a tried and true method you've done every time? Have you evolved on it? And what is, what do you like to see now? Three questions here. So tried and true, have you evolved and what are you doing now? 
Yeah. So I think tried and true, the more equity you bring, the more comfortable everything gets. I don't like a 5% contingency. I like a 10% contingency. When you're looking at the overall numbers of the deal and you're going to throw, let's call it another half a million dollars in on $5 million worth of equity. If yeah. that really screws up your numbers, you probably shouldn't do the deal. Right. So tried and true is always bring more than you need. Uh, number two, and then the other question was, have I evolved? Absolutely, because I didn't always bring extra, right? Yeah. I always, I used to look at it and man, you could really push those numbers a half a percent, maybe three quarters of a percent by well, not as, bringing- as in all underwriting, but yes, yeah. now we're talking about yeah. development. <laughs> you, you can pencil whip that until it looks like you're absolutely amazing. But the reality is when you really get done and you look at what's practical, we're getting ready to go out on an investment right now. And I'm showing a 14 and a half percent IRR. I'm starting out at a 6% cash on cash within 18 months. I'll be at 9% cash on cash just because we'll be raising rents. And this is in an industrial product, right? Yes. But if everything goes right, my underwriting is somewhere in the 23s. But I'm not showing that because when you really know the evolution for me has been from trying to sell my number to letting people understand who they're investing with, letting them understand that it's me, no trust me, understand that my results have always been consistent because my underwriting is as conservative as I can make it and still get people to join because I don't like disappointing anyone. And I like being grounded in real world stuff. So that's really how I've evolved. It's such a really, it's such a a mature way of, and I love to see that, hear that. And I'm I'm getting there myself as as well, but that's amazing to hear that. And that final piece, that final question is what are you doing now? There's lots more to talk about, but what are you doing right now for uh, the debt and the financing side? Talk about some principles, but what are you doing? So you put a deal together now. What does that look like? What's that capital stack? You know, one of the things that's exciting to me right now, and I really told everybody to do this when rates were two and 3% is get all the debt you can get, get it locked in for as long as you can, and then make it assumable. Because I'm going after assumable debt right now like there's no tomorrow. We're taking down deals that are 45, 50% equity on 4% assumable debt with nine years left still on it. And that is trading at a premium right now because you can't get that debt, right? Yes. Yeah. But I can take that down. We can have a nice stabilized asset that's going to spit off cash. We can refi if we want to. If rates come back down, we've got all kinds of options. But that stabilized debt is what we're putting in that final piece right now and where we're looking at that that assumable because it really helps your NOI and it helps them achieve a higher sales price, but also puts us in a position to maybe be able to pay a little bit more and still have better cash flow. Yeah. So a win. And yeah. also people look at the market and you look at the debt market out there and like, oh, Fannie and Freddie or agency debt is six or whatever it is right now. And then it's actually the more sophisticated investors and developers or sponsors and developers, if you would, are finding these kinds of deals. So it's, it's, yes, that is the rate, but they're not buying at that rate. They're buying, these are chasing these kinds of deals. Like you said, there is a yeah. premium for chasing these guys down, but also it's not, it, it wouldn't be, would make sense to find, to get, to assume the debt and then get a higher interest rate. So you're keeping it not too far away from wherever right. the debt is right now. Yeah. Yeah. And on these assumptions, some of this stuff is done with life insurance debt. So they don't like to replace it, right? They uh, want the 10 years on it. And so you're able to take that down and everybody likes that, especially when you think about the story you're selling. Now, when you're talking about 4% debt, everybody just swoons and go, oh, I remember when, but the reality is that's amazing debt. And if we can have that going into an inflationary environment, that asset that we're buying and assuming 
is going to continue to appreciate just based on the debt that's associated with it. The debt, the debt itself is a tremendously valuable asset, yeah. if you would. It's exactly. extremely, it really extremely is. valuable. Yeah. You know, it and really then with is. inflation, you look at like where the debt is and then where lending is at the high level, at the agency level, they look at where inflation is and you're getting something at four. It's like you put that in your spreadsheets. It's holy smoke. This again, we're not going to get all excited or over too far over skis about the potential returns, but it makes a really a very compelling um potential for the deal. And it just, it gets strengthens the foundation of the deal that you're not, like you said, you're being conservative, which everyone says they're going to be conservative, but when you know what to look for and you dig into those numbers, then it's, it's looking really compelling and you really gives confidence to the sponsor and the investment. Yeah. And I think right now, Johnny, in this market, people that are showing 23, 24, 25% returns, yes. they kind of need to be a little bit leery because those returns aren't normal right? They have been for the last two, three years, but now with interest rates changing, those aren't really going to be the norm moving forward, nor have they been in the past. So when you're looking at that and you're seeing, man, we've juiced this thing and we're getting a 23% return. There's the potential for that. Everything goes right. That's great. I don't think this is the economy and the market that everything goes right for the next 24 months. That's awesome, man. So moving to to the next stage of the, as we wrap up the conversation here, what asset class is, I know you mentioned quite a few there, industrial, like you mentioned that, which one do you feel is most compelling for the next 12 months or 24 months? What are you trying to do? What do you think is something sure. you want, you're putting your money behind? Absolutely industrial right now. And two reasons why. Number one, industrial is not, it's a slower burn right? But it also trades at a six and a half to a seven cap. So you're already stepping into cash flow. And I think that the other side of that coin is that multifamily has been overblown for so long. Yeah. Now we're having an adjustment and we're going to see a period where people aren't able to continue that. And there's going to be some fallout in there. There's going to be some things that are going to happen. But what I also know is that tenant, when we had tenants in 2008, that were losing their houses, they were keeping their businesses, right? Because yeah, they yeah. themselves. Yeah. So when you've got an uncertain environment and you've got property taxes are going up and you got insurance going up and all this stuff, industrials are triple net. So if you're looking for something that's going to be a lot smoother sailing for the next 24 months than anything else right now, I think industrial is going to be that space because of all the factors that go along with that. Higher cash returns and the expenses are actually passed on to the tenant. That's amazing, man. Let's zoom out on is the final comment here. And if you have a comment on it, I'd love to get it. That is the related to COVID and also geopolitical strife and tension with China in particular, but other around the world. That is the reshoring of American manufacturing and the industrial base. Do you think that also is having a major impact in the industrial space? I do. Houston last year absorbed 20 million square feet of new industrial, right? New? It was like brand new? Set, yeah. They're set to bring on another 27 million square feet. So some of these are the Amazon million square foot facilities. But the other side of that is we started, we saw that happened with Long Beach, California during COVID and how that got backed up. People rediscovered Houston as a shipping port. We're seeing that grow, but we're seeing people get pissed off about having to wait for electrical gear, having to struggle with this, having to struggle with that. And we're seeing that businesses now I think that for a lot of years, Americans have had the attitude of, I want it cheaper. Now we're thinking, we just want it. 
So if we want it, we got to make it. <laughs> so so if you can like, if I can save maybe half or a few bucks on yeah. uh, with some time versus I could save, I'm not going to save anything if I can't sell it. So it's like, right. uh, at least exactly. rather like if I could, uh, I just need to sell it. And I just be, I need to have the exactly. ability to sell it or some transact something. Here. And I think that you're going to see, and I think we are seeing a lot more people. I was just down in Phoenix, Arizona with my parents and you've got Toshiba is building that $20 billion plant down there. It's an amazing thing to watch this go on. 27,000 construction workers out there on the job site on a thousand acres because Toshiba is looking at it going, yeah, probably ought to quit the shipping problem and just build it where we're going to use them. And I, my first deal, my, it's a multifamily deal. So you have to forgive me for that is, is also in Phoenix there. And I've seen also Shiba or also the TSMC chip manufacturing and what Intel is pouring into the chip manufacturing centers as well across, which is also tied into the geopolitical tension with Taiwan, right. of course, being so close to China, and then the threat of them not getting attacked or annihilated, right. or whatever it is. And then getting sucked into the black shut, hole. Yeah. How, having that shut down America's dominant edge in the military and the technological industrial space having so much of our advanced chips. So obviously the Biden administration, something good that I agreed with they did is put many, many billions of dollars behind those initiatives to reshore at least that from that perspective. And of course that has a yeah. lot of bleed lead side, side effect on the other adjacent vendors and other support companies that help those people. I agree. I agree. And it's something we should have been doing and paying a lot more attention to for a lot longer in our history, but I'm glad we're doing something about it now. I think it'll be very strong for America and it will help our bottom line and help our wages increase. Awesome, man. What is the best way for people to find out more about you and to hear what you're doing and to get in contact with you, Robin or Shannon? Sorry. Yeah, just shannonrobnet.com. You've got access to my calendar right there. I'd love to book an appointment, find out what we can do to help you. You can see our job site cameras, see what's going on, check out our past and present projects. You can get it all right there. I love that, man. I love that. Did you actually have live cameras? And I'll have to check yeah. it out myself. But are your live yeah. cameras of the job site? So you're not just give, giving Shannon money, hey, take 100K, whatever, and just go do something like that. You actually can see you're yep. actually putting his money to work and your, or your money to work and doing being productive and responsible and good stewards of that money. Absolutely. Until next, yeah, until next time, everyone, thank you for listening to another episode of the Investing Institutional Podcast. Of course, we always appreciate reviews, likes, comments. That always helps us grow. And so until next time, thank you, Robin or Shannon. Bye. We'll see you.